Good morning. Thanks for joining me on the Meg Ellison Show. I sincerely appreciate you tuning in on this sunny Monday. Gosh, we're going to have some good weather later on today. So not like a Wisconsin winter, but hey, I'll take it. I am delighted to have joining me this morning via phone uh, from the National Right to Work Committee, the president of that organization, Mark Mix. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good. I'm doing great, Meg. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you this morning. Yes. Well, you know, it's an interesting conversation that we are about to have. I'm just teeing it up that way. But, you know, it's inter- I was not really engaged or involved in politics in Wisconsin when my husband and I first moved here more than 15 years ago. And it was it was by choice because my husband, I was involved when we lived in Minnesota, my home state. And he made me promise when we moved to Wisconsin, we had really small children. He said, please, oh, please don't get involved in politics because I know what it does to you. And so I I took a few years off, but then very quickly realized that someone had to do it. Someone had to get involved. And I, I got engaged in the Tea Party movement and here locally in central Wisconsin and learned a lot about how unions work and how they for whatever reason, well, I, I guess we can make our own assumptions, uh, are mostly engaged and involved in helping Democrats uh, get reelected or elected. And, I, you know, there's obviously reasons for that. But I'm so glad that your organization exists to keep keep them in check. And I think you've found out some, well, some interesting information, at least about well, let's start with the United Auto Workers and what uh, what you've discovered in terms of perhaps what what they're paying lip service to and, and maybe what their members are actually going to be doing coming up in November. Yeah, Meg. Well, if you've been involved in, in uh, Wisconsin politics for a little while, you've kind of got a Ph.D. in, in kind of union power. And right. uh, with the, the protest of Act 10 and the attacks on Scott Walker – and then, obviously, the opposition to the passage of the Right to Work Law in 2015, you've seen kind of firsthand how all this works. And to your point, it's a really interesting uh, model, if you will, from a standpoint of, a, of, of the, the model that unions use to, to foment and continue uh, their power over American workers. And it's the idea that they support a political party. Uh, they use compulsory dues payments in the states that don't have right-to-work laws. Wisconsin, obviously, since 2015, has had a right-to-work law. It doesn't stop anyone from joining a union or associating with the union if they choose to do so. It basically just says that they can't be they can't lose their job if they don't pay dues or fees to a private organization. And frankly, it's not a bad product when you think about how you could hold a union official accountable for the political views they take, the ideological views they take, or frankly, just the corruption that uh, goes on in organized labor. And it goes on in other places as well, too. But very few people have the power to compel you to continue to pay dues or fees in order to keep your job when the corruption is happening real time. And that happened with the United Auto Workers Union. Just two years ago, the UAW was put under federal trusteeship because of just absolute corruption up and down through the executive branch and the C-suite of that union in Detroit. I mean, two of the past presidents have gone to jail on under felonies for racketeering and extortion and stealing money from their members. And, you know, union officials want us to forget about all that corruption, but I believe, and Senator John McClellan, who was uh, the representative senator from Arkansas back when we had what were known as the Landrum-Griffin hearings in 1959 and 1960, said that compulsion and corruption go hand in hand. 
And when union officials have that type of power over your livelihood, and when they can collect the money as a condition of you working, that leads to and expands corruption. Not that there's not corruption anyplace else, but when there is and when it's uncovered, people can vote with their pocketbooks. But that's hard to do when union officials have that type of power. And so the United Auto Workers now are parlaying that power, trying to expand it in state after state where, unfortunately for them and fortunately for us, manufacturing jobs have gone like in Tennessee with the Volkswagen plant. And there's a big power grab going on there right now, Meg. We can talk a little bit about that if you want. Oh, yes, please do, because, I mean, it's it's interesting. And honestly, we have to gain a perspective on what they're doing, because in in watching them, we can also then try to anticipate what they're going to pull next. I guess that's the way I look at it, right? Yeah, well, they've already kind of set the recipe for Wisconsin. I mean, the, the, the legal challenge to Act 10 was teed up immediately upon the transition of your Supreme Court. And now we've got uh, we've got a right to work repeal bill pending in the legislature, and of course with the new redistricting lines, the political situation in Wisconsin is going to change dramatically, uh, probably not only in the primary but as we move into November. But it suffice that the United Auto Workers Union, and it comes to the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, uh, they started operations down there down in 2013. I think they started out with probably 1,500 employees making the uh, one of the I guess the Passat, which is one of the Volkswagen uh, models. And it was their first encounter, well, their second encounter in the United States. They tried it first in Westmoreland, Pennsylvania, and uh, the Volkswagen management back in Germany agreed to a kind of a a pre-hire agreement, meaning they were going to bring in UAW to that facility. And it didn't take long before the first strike occurred, and and about two years after that big strike, that that plant just shuttered. They closed it because uh, it was no longer functional and operational. So they tried again. They came to Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee, where there's a right-to-work state. And they've had two attempts to get the workers there to join the union, to vote for the union for recognition. And both times the union has been rejected. But this time the the odds are a little different because the Biden administration has stacked the deck in favor of union officials and against rank and file workers who, you know, Biden claims he's just a lunch bucket Joe guy and he represents the small guy. Well, in fact, he doesn't. Who he represents is the union officials and the power that they have to basically force more workers into unions to generate more political contributions that turn into electoral politics. And so there's a a campaign going there right now, uh, what's called a card check campaign, where union officials circulate around the membership or the the people that work at Volkswagen, not the membership yet, but they, uh, they circulate a card that says, hey, would you like more pay? Would you like more benefits? Would you like better insurance? If you do, just sign this card. Well, most workers don't understand that that signing that card becomes a vote for unionization. And it used to be, under a Supreme Court president, precedent from 1974, that the employer could actually request a secret ballot election when presented with some showing of majority in the workplace. And whether that majority was gathered legitimately or whether it was gathered through nefarious means, no one really paid attention because the employer could, could request a secret ballot election. And both times at Volkswagen, when, the, when the, the workers there have been able to vote, vote in private, they voted against the union. But this time, it's very likely that there will be no secret ballot election at Volkswagen. It will be simply a card check recognition, and it will be up to the employer to verify that the union does not have a majority. 
And that's a result of a major uh, NLRB, National Labor Relations Board decision from 2023, that basically eliminated the secret ballot election, Megan. So workers now can be cajoled into signing a card on under you know, false pretenses, and then that card turns into a vote for the union, and the next thing you know, you're forced into a union and forced to associate with the union, and uh, your rights get uh, limited and, and, and significantly reduced under those situations. Gosh, Mark, I shudder to think what Wisconsin could look like if indeed the Democrats are successful at reversing some of this uh, historic legislation that uh, was accomplished in the Walker administration and Republican-led legislature. Yeah, Meg. Well, I think the taxpayers will feel it more than anybody else. I mean, when you think about Act 10, and I mean, even the, the executives in Milwaukee announced that Act 10 gave them a little bit of breathing room when it came to trying to negotiate contracts for government employees there. You know, Act 10 basically limited bargaining to wages. It said, we're not going to bargain over other things like the health insurance that was, you know, WEAC and some of the other unions there were, were using very effectively to, uh, to, to supplement their income and their revenue streams. And, you know, I think everyone there knows that Act 10 and Scott Walker's courage there when he stood up and fought the government unions um, basically saved taxpayers in, in Wisconsin literally billions of dollars. And and I think as we as they go back to try to overturn Act 10, whether it be uh, legislatively, it's not going to happen right now. But the Supreme Court's already taking a very serious look at it. And I think that case that's going that's you know already in the court system is going to be expedited, probably past the court of appeals right to the Supreme Court. And uh, forgive me for not being able to pronounce her name correctly, but you know when she was campaigning, Miss Prost, can you? Oh, Protasiewicz. Protasiewicz, yeah. When she was campaigning. She said the first thing she wants to do is look at Act 10 and the unconstitutionality of it. And she also mentioned right to work. So it may be a big surprise for taxpayers and citizens of Wisconsin. To your point, Meg, if this gets changed and we go back to the old, uh, the old model that Wisconsin was kind of the innovator of back in the ni- late 1950s for unionization of government employees and then forced recognition thereof by the legislature and by government entities, Things will change relatively quickly, I think, for folks up there. And I think people who don't have, you know, a grasp of history and, and I, I mean, there was a time, obviously, when the unions played an important role in in work uh, or for on behalf of workers. But it has I don't know if I don't like to use the term evolved, but that's I guess it, it has evolved into enriching those that are in the leadership positions with it within these public or public or private unions and it doesn't it it really doesn't help or protect the workers as it once did. Yeah, I agree with that and I agree, you know, people often say that there there was a place for unions and and that's right. There was because when an employer abuses the rights of workers or just doesn't take care of them, they need to be able to join together to amplify their voice and that was the model of unionization. You know, it shouldn't have been imposed by the federal government back in the 1930s, but the idea of joining together to increase your strength and amplify your voice is a really important part of the entire kind of employment labor picture. And I say this, there was a place for unions, there is a place for unions, and there will be a place for unions, but there's no place for force and compulsion. And unfortunately, that's the model that organized labor operates today, is this privilege, this unique privilege of being able to say, you know what, if you want to work here... You've got to pay us, a private organization, for the right to work. I think that has skewed the entire labor union model, both in the past and presently, and it will in the future if they want to continue down that line. In fact, it was Samuel Gompers, the father of the American labor movement, 
of the AFL back in his final speech to the delegates of the AFL convention in El Paso, Texas in 1924, said this. He said the workers of America adhere to voluntary institutions. Anything else, any compulsion, will destroy that which is inherently stronger through voluntarism than anything that can be cobbled together through compulsion. And he's right about that, Meg. I mean, we join organizations and participate in activities because we want to be part of the union. We want to be we're an adherent to the policies or the principles or the practices of particular organizations that we volunteer for or join or pay subscriptions to because we want to be part of it. You, labor unions have a unique power. They they can force. They don't want adherence. They want bodies because bodies translate into dollars, and dollars translate into political power, and political power translates into more union power. So that vicious cycle we started out with comes full circle when we talk about it in this context. You know, and I think uh, it's just I don't know. It's 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 most egregious to to I guess to observe how. Uh, th- this mentality that's so different than, I guess, the way that I was raised in, in believing that um, I I can be my best advocate. And, and I guess mm-hmm. there's there's a difference um, in, I guess, I, I don't know, I don't know, it's probably not worldview, but it, there's a difference in mentality with those who are so pro-union and that want to be able to have uh, that control over those that are members. And you know, I've always believed that if I had some sort of grievance with an employer, and I and I, I must admit I've always uh, worked in the private sector, I've had a I've had a um, positive enough uh, rapport and relationship with my with management to feel comfortable enough, and I guess self confident enough to go to management and say, "Listen, here's here's what I'm seeing. This is what I you know." Th- th- here are my grievances and let's have a conversation about it. And I, it's too bad because I don't think that uh, being a member of a union at least empowers people to have feel that they have the ability to negotiate for themselves or to be able to be their best advocates. And I don't, I've, I just, it, based on what I've observed over the years with regard to unions, it doesn't seem as if they are representing what's best or being advocates for the actual for those those members that are forced to join and be a part of a union. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And and unfortunately one of the elements of this compulsory unionism power, this forced unionism power and forced union association that came out of the nineteen thirties is exactly what you're talking about. That it stops individual employees from talking to their supervisor or talking to the, the business owner about issues when there's a union in place because the union becomes the sole voice in that workplace. Anything that has you know that deals with an employee dealing with an employer in most instances, almost in virtually every instance, the union official has to be present and the union official can decide whether or not a grievance or something that is being discussed between an employer and employee, without, and it can't be discussed without a union official present, anything like that, they control. And they can decide, hey, you know what, Meg is kind of, she's, she's too strong-willed, she's not a big supporter <laughs> of the union, we're not going to take her grievance any farther. In fact, if the employer talks to her about it, it's an unfair labor practice charge under most labor policies, whether it be public sector or whether it be pri- certainly in the private sector. If it is, it's violative of the conditions of the contract, and the union will say, you know what, you committed an unfair labor practice charge by having by sitting down with Meg and discussing her grievances in a sane way. Um, that's is, that's kind of a zero-sum game where there's the model is confrontation as opposed to 
you know, getting along with one another. I grew up in a union household. My stepfather was a 32 member of the machinist union, and there was a strike back in the mid 1970s. And I remember just how con- you know, confrontational it got. And that's that's kind of what I think about when I think about organized labor and think about the power they have over workers. And now, in my position working at Right to Work and the Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, where we represent literally thousands and thousands and thousands of employees across the country every year in, in what are about 200 to 225 cases. In fact, we just helped a, a bunch of drivers at uh, Dr. Pepper Keurig in Oshkosh and uh, Eau Claire. Okay, let me Eau Claire. That one too. Eau Claire, okay. That's Eau Claire. Close. And yeah, pretty cool. I'm sorry. I, I need to get those names right. But those are the type of people that have the courage to stand up and say, you know what? This is not right, and we're. I'm glad that we have the opportunity to help them, and and so you're right about that. The unions tend to have this. Well, they certainly have the monopoly power, and then they 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 try to convince this kind of narrative that you know, look, we'll take care of it. You may not be able to handle it. We have the, the you know, we're the quote professionals, and we'll do this. And oftentimes that that militates against individual employees who have the attitude that you articulated that you have about. You know, look, I can sit down and I have enough confidence in myself to be able to talk about these things. But under this strict labor policy that's kind of mandated by the federal government when you have a union, that type of engagement is really a problem. And, and they consider that to be an unfair labor practice charge, let alone being anything that would be positive between you and your employer. And, you know, I guess it perpetuates a victimhood mentality. And I just yeah. I don't wish to be part of that. I guess that's just not how I view myself. And I really don't think anyone should view themselves as, as victims. You know, before we run out of time, I want to touch on at least the you know, and I just roll my eyes when I hear about, oh, here's the latest latest group that's trying to organize uh, and become a union is Starbucks. I mean, I don't, yeah. I, I don't even drink coffee, so it, it, it doesn't affect me, but it, it evidently doesn't occur to those who, uh, that wanted to organize a union that it's going to cost the employees money. <laughs> and it's also yeah. going to cost the customers money. Those who, who seem to scramble to support, uh, organizations or, or businesses like Starbucks because it, the, 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 the cost for a union is going to be passed on to somebody and it's certainly not going to be the union that pays for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's interesting, Meg, you mentioned that because a number of those Starbucks that have heretofore voted for unionization are now coming to us. We're helping, I think, I want to say we're up to 15 different Starbucks stores that the employees have come to us and said, help us get out. Well, I'll tell you this, it's very easy to get in and it is very difficult to get out when you when when the union's there. And so they're coming to us asking for help in decertifying the union. And those numbers are growing um, as we get more and more phone calls from baristas who were organized under false pretenses. And often in many situations where the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, trained organizers to go in and get jobs at Starbucks. They paid them. The SEIU paid them $50,000 to to work for the union to go into a facility and unionize it. And then once they win the election, they move on to the next one. And it turns out that everyone looks around and says, hey, where's Meg? She, she's the one that was all all big on this and convinced us to do it. Where does she go? Right. It turns out she's moved on to another election, and uh, she's just a union employee acting uh, surreptitiously as, as an employee of Starbucks in many cases. Obviously, there are some Starbucks employees that are very interested in unionization for the reasons you articulate. You know, look, if we can make 25 bucks an hour, we'd love to do that. But the, the economic implications of that are, are much more uh, uh, involved than one might think. I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, we make 25 bucks an hour, but then how much does a cup of coffee cost? Gosh, and, and I mean, seriously, how hard is it to make a cup of coffee? You need to get paid 25 bucks an hour? Oh, it's just unbelievable to me. 
And, you know, I don't even drink coffee, and, and it's, you know, it's a pretty I can't believe process. that. I, shame on you. Shame <laughs> on you. <laughs> I drink caffeinated water. That's the closest I come to it, Mark. That's uh, okay. just a, never yeah. been a fan. Well, thank yeah. you, as always, for your efforts on behalf of, uh, I mean, I'll say freedom and liberty here yes. in, uh, in America, and grateful for National Right to Work Committee and uh, Mark, Mark Mix. And I will tell you that uh, we chatted about this off air, but I will say hello to our mutual friend, Michelle, for you when I see her. And uh, look forward to our next conversation. Keep fighting the good fight. We'll do it, Meg. And, and, and just for your sake, don't stop believing, okay? <laughs> I got I got you there. Hey, Mark, All right. if, if our listeners wanted to uh, learn more about your organization, what's your website URL? Yeah, nrtw.org, nrtw.org. As a national right to work. Very easy to follow. Well, great. Mark Mix, thanks again for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too, Meg. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Going to the 930 News, followed by your calls on the other side, 715-845-2155 on the Meg Ellison Show on WSAU. (laughs) 